Okay, well, thank you so much for being here. I'm really uh, glad to see you. Um, I was one of the people that was really suggesting, hey, let's have a Q&A panel on this topic of social justice. I wasn't quite sure if maybe people were sick of the topic, but uh, by, uh, judging by the uh, fullness of the room, it seems like it is still a topic of significant interest, so I'm grateful for that. Uh, I'm going to do some introductions, and then I'll go over some ground rules. Uh, first, on my right is Daryl Harrison. He is a U.S. Army veteran. He was in Intelligence Security Command for six years. He is an alumni of Liberty University, specializing in Christian counseling. He is an alumni of Princeton Theological Seminary, the Theology and Ministry Program, as well as a fellow in the Black Theology and Leadership Institute. He is actually the first African-American deacon at the historic First Baptist Church of Covington in Georgia. That's where he was planted prior to moving out to Los Angeles, which he did in January, to be the dean of social media at Grace to You, as well as a wonderful member of our church. So he is also, uh, you may know Daryl, in fact, uh, I'm really so glad he could join us. I was very eager for him to do so because he is the lead of the podcast Just Thinking, and he also has a blog of the same name, Just Thinking, with uh, Daryl Harrison. And that podcast is a tremendous podcast that talks about a number of issues uh, just from a very biblical and wise perspective. And, uh, you know, just really recommend that podcast to anyone. It really covers a wide variety of topics. He does have a specialty, though, I would say, in this issue of social justice. On my left uh, is a man who really needs no introduction, Carl Hargrove, one of your faithful pastors in the Anchored Fellowship Group. He did his undergrad at the University of Cincinnati and may have some partiality toward their football team. (laughs) Uh, He uh, did his MDiv, his THM, and his DMIN here at TMS. He has been a pastor for nearly 30 years, I believe, uh, so he has much experience. Uh, He's the pastor of the Grace Advance organization where I serve with Carl, and that's a joy where we try to help uh, just serve other churches of similar like-mindedness that uh, seek to either plant or revitalize a church. And he's also the dean of students, director of placement, and a professor at the Master Seminary. So he wears maybe one or two hats uh, here. Uh, I am by far the least of these, of these men up here, I would say. Uh, I'm a lay pastor. My name is Han Cho. I'm a lay pastor in the Cornerstone Fellowship Group. I am a lawyer in my day job. And you know how highly the scriptures praise lawyers. That, uh, that, uh, I always feel that a little keenly when I come across a verse like that. Uh, and uh, of interest to this panel, I am a former leftist critical theorist myself from UC Berkeley, where I went to undergrad and law school, and uh, that was before God saved me. And at the time, I lived much of my adult life seeing the world through race-colored glasses, I would say. So in any event, uh, these are the three of us in this panel. We're going to do a Q&A. We're going to have some time taking live questions from the audience. We're going to go through some questions texted to me if you want a little bit more discretion. Uh, and we're not going to be able to get through everything, but we'll try to get through as many as we can. I do have a few exhortations to you on questions. If you could do your best to please make them brief, that would be wonderful. If it's a really long, fact-specific question, we're going to be here afterwards. We can, we're happy to talk to you privately afterwards, but try to keep your questions brief and of general applicability. That would benefit the group. I would also say please make your questions actually a question. On occasion, we get a kind of a filibustering a statement of position, and I would urge you to please try to avoid that. 
Um, I would urge you, again, our striving up here on the panel is going to be as gracious as possible. I would also urge you to be gracious in the asking of the question, as you always are. And I would also say that, uh, you know, as we go through this, we're going to start with one question per person. And then to the extent time allows, maybe we can get to a second one. But uh, that's what we'll do. And maybe we'll start. uh, There is a question, and I'm going to ask Carl and Daryl. I've gotten a few of these questions. How do you define Social justice would be a question that I've received in a few text messages. So, Carl or Daryl, I'll defer to you on that. Uh, this may sound weird, but I don't think there is a definition for it. Uh, and I think that's one of the problems with dealing with this issue is that the definition is, escapes us. There is no definitive, objective definition of it. I mean, the thing I would have to do is probably parse the term to begin with. I think we all have a a rather objective construct of what the word social means uh, as it relates to defining society and people who comprise a certain society. But it's when you get to the justice part of social justice that it gets muddled. Um, And I think that one of the reasons we're talking about this today is because there is no uh, concrete definition for that term social justice that the world points to now for the body of Christ there is a definitive, objective definition for justice. But before we even get to the definition, I think an antecedent question is, where does the very concept of justice come from? And I think one mistake that we're making in talking about this issue is that we leap towards wanting to define the term without first trying to understand where the very ideal of justice originates. And once you determine that, once you can answer that question, then I think you find that your your definition of justice is inherent to the origin of it as a concept. Um, So from the standpoint of how to define the term, um, at the risk of being evasive, which I do not wish to be, um, I've engaged on this issue long enough to know that there is no definitive definition of it. You ask 10 different people, 10 people, and you'll get 10 different responses. Um, so that's, that's, that's my input on that question. I'll defer to Carl. It is difficult because right now we're talking about social justice. Most of us are thinking about the way it's used in the blogosphere and social media And so that makes it very difficult. Um, And as Dale has already stated, uh, if one uses terms, we all know that sometimes we use them differently than the other person. We we agree with that, correct? Uh, Recently, I was uh, making a visit, just as an example, making a visit to one of our Grace Advanced churches. And we were talking about this new church starting and how they should go about things. And and we discussed culture and what would be the culture of the church. And we got into the discussion about music. And what would be their style? And they presently have one. They would say that they're traditional. And they asked me my opinion about contemporary music. And it was, Pastor, um, how do you feel about contemporary versus traditional? And right away, I actually said to them, I'm not prepared to answer that question because I'm not sure what you mean by either one. Um, And then I, after that, just asked, what do you mean by contemporary music? And the person told me, well, when I think about contemporary, it's loud and it repeats itself. So (laughs) guess what? Uh, That's not my definition of contemporary music. So had I answered it, if I would have said, oh, I really, 
yeah, I enjoy contemporary music. She would have been thinking, oh, he likes loud, repetitive music. I'm not sure if we should have a relationship with Grace Advance. So we got into a discussion about how we use terms and terms are used in a certain context, and we have to be careful of it. So at times I hear people say, uh, we should have nothing to do with social justice, but sometimes if you ask them, what's your definition of that? And they're not prepared to give you one. They just, they just have concluded they don't want anything to do with it because they see some of the people associated with the term. And I don't think that's the best way to approach it is to say I'm against it because of association. So when I think about if I were to use the term social justice, the idea that as believers within the body of Christ and even towards our fellow man, that we're treating them in a just manner and justice is expressed societally. It happens in society. Um, how the term is used today, there are many definitions, and I even have some of them here that maybe at some point in time I could read portions of them to you, and you would say, well, that line in that definition I agree with. Oh, that line I disagree with. Uh, that sounds liberal. That sounds like something we would say here at Grace Church. So that creates the problem. Um, so my definition is that the expression of the second commandment in society, that I want to treat men equally and fairly based on my command to love them as my, as my neighbor. Yeah, I, I think that's really helpful from both Daryl and Carl, and I agree with both of them. I'm going to take a slightly different tack here, which is there is a rhetorical uh, tactic, uh, a debate uh, kind of uh, tactic uh, called steel manning. And it's the opposite of a straw man. A straw man is where you set up an easy-to-defeat def- argument and knock it down. A steel man is where you try to present your opponent's argument in the best possible light. And so, you know, in dealing with a number of Christians who would say that they are social justice advocates or social justicians, as my friend Daryl Harrison has coined the phrase, uh, you know, I would say that they would make the argument that, look, all we're trying to do is we're trying to apply biblical concepts of justice to the social realm. That's it. That's all we want to do. And, you know, that's their claim is that, look, the Bible does speak to matters of justice broadly. And they're saying, look, we want to apply that to social realm. And I would say, look, innocently, broadly, as Carl was indicating, I don't think that there would necessarily be a fundamental opposition to that concept. The problem is many of these social justicians then start drilling down very specifically into very detailed policy prescriptions. And a lot of these policy prescriptions that they're advocating for under the so-called banner of biblical justice really is not biblical at all. And that's really where you can go from a broad concept, and then when they try to get narrow it down into a situation, oh, well, biblical, you know, social justice, even from the Bible, would say that you need to support affirmative action, or you need to support open borders, or, or things of this nature, completely eliding over and ignoring the fact that there are very strong biblical arguments to the contrary. And so it's one thing to say social justice broadly is the application of biblical principles to the social realm. But the reality is that you need to get very specific in terms of what you're trying to forward as a proposition. And is that proposition biblical? One thing that Phil Johnson has said that I really appreciate so much is I much prefer the term biblical justice because biblical justice is an overarching broad term. And it includes concepts like Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, submitting to the governmental authorities, even the horrible governmental authorities under the Roman, mad Roman Emperor Nero in 1 Peter, uh, you know, that that's a fundamental part of social 
justice is submitting to the governmental authorities. Uh, as one example among many, you could go, you know, if you don't work, you don't eat. That's a principle that we see in Scripture that relates to the issue of justice. And I think, again, another, there's another conflation here. There's so many different conflations I would say forwarded by the social justicians, one would be the role of the church versus the role of the individual Christian. Often confused because the role of the church is to equip the saints to build them up and to send them out for the work of the ministry and the proclamation of the gospel. We would say that's the role of the church. It's not to, as nice as they are, it's not to open up hospitals and soup kitchens. That's maybe the role of individual Christians who have that calling in their Christian liberty, but that's not the role of the church. So that's how I would say that, uh, respond to that kind of argument, that broader argument. Carl, I think you had said before you might have a question or two that you wanted to pose before we get to maybe the audience. Sure, actually, um, someone sent in actually two questions that I thought um, were reasonable, and it's probably one that you may have as well. And one was uh, as to preaching from the pulpit, that is, Sunday to Sunday, not necessarily basing on how regular it would be, is there a place for a pastor to preach on racism from the pulpit? And they said, I would like to have that answered by the panel because a number of people responded to me when I posted we would be doing this. And I obviously told them that it would be recorded and it would be posted on the Web page. So that's our first question, if you will. Is it acceptable to preach on racism from the pulpit? I asked the question, so you'll have to answer. <laughs> yeah. I have an answer as well, but go ahead. Well, my thoughts on that are this. Uh, short answer is yes, you should preach uh, on racism from the pulpit. But expanding on that a little bit, I don't see why racism needs to be treated as its special own category of sin. Um, in Scripture, there are only two attitudes that you and I can have. We have in the world today all these isms. We like to add suffixes to all the the sins that Scripture uh, teaches us exist. But biblically, there are only two attitudes you and I can have. I either love you or I hate you. Now, you can call it an ism if you want. But what pastors need to be preaching from the pulpit, and you and I as individual believers need to be talking about, is what the Bible teaches about hate and love. That's really what it boils down to. All these isms and all these ists and these other suffixes that we like to attach to these sins are unnecessary. Especially if you read the epistle of 1 John, it's very clear. In 1 John 4, you cannot say you love your brother who you, I'm sorry, love God who you have not seen. And hate your brother who you have who you have seen. It is a love hate. It's an either or everything else falls under that umbrella. So to answer Carl's question, yes, the answer is yes. But this is just Daryl speaking. I don't see that racism needs to be treated any differently than adultery, lying, stealing or anything else. It is a sin And we need to start treating it like that as opposed to some behavioral, uh, you know, anomaly out here that can be fixed uh, through 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 conversation. Now, now listen, don't misunderstand me. Any of you who have listened to my uh, podcast know that I'm going to be straight with you on this issue. 
I'm not saying that conversations like this are not helpful, but I've participated in conversations like this before. And I always reach the same conclusion. Injustice, and this goes back to something I said earlier, we have to understand what construct of justice are you talking about? You cannot have a human construct, a human, a man-centered definition of justice. If justice as an ideal was born within man, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Because by nature, we would be treating one another justly. So you must go back to how do you define justice to begin with? And to what what, uh, Han was saying earlier, uh, there's this uh, broad application of justice. And the more broadly, uh, just to give you a distinction between how uh, what biblical justice is versus social justice. Biblical justice applies equally to everyone regardless of your circumstances, situation. Social justice applies the concept of justice so broadly that the definition can change and the application of it can change depending on which group you're talking about. That is an unavoidable distinction between how the world defines justice and applies it and how the Bible defines justice and applies it. I I, I think of a text like uh, Leviticus 19.15. Well, God says, you shall do no injustice. You shall neither defore to the poor or to the great. There are aspects of worldly social justice that inherently defer to the poor. Now, regardless of your intentions, that's a sin. So we must understand what definition, what construct, what paradigm of justice are you talking about? So again, yes, pastors, preach from the pulpit on racism, but don't treat it as some special sin that just uh, just sort of rose to the surface here over the past yeah, several like, years. Like a super sin. Right. Anything. This is yeah. not some super sin. Right. This, this is nothing new. This is an issue. Listen, if I have a uh, sinful prejudicial bias to my friend Ron here because of his ethnicity, that's sin. You, why do I need to put an ism on that? I hate him. That's what the Bible teaches. I hate him. And I need to I need to have that hatred remedied in my heart. So, yes, preach from the pulpit, but don't treat it as some super sin because it's not. Every man up here hates racism. okay, and and has preached against racism. And, And I think the problem is, you know, one reason that we love expository preaching here is because as we go through scripture and topics come up, and believe me, the topic of ethnic hatred comes up a lot in the New Testament, you have opportunities sure. as scripture speaks, as scripture is put before you, to bring out that topic. But one thing you'll notice is that sometimes people get on their hobby horses, and it's like they talk about certain things all the time. That, that to me, you know, especially uh, you know, if they would claim to uphold expository preaching, would be a, a kind of a warning sign to me. Because really, uh, you know, when you see that a pastor has a hobby horse, it tends to make their ministry unbalanced. Let me go back to just your response to that question, because I think the person that asked it and even others that may not have asked it, but they're thinking it, are saying, okay, great. Um, if racism is like, know the sin, and it can be 
no different than adultery or stealing or anything else. I've heard many men preach many messages on those other areas, but they seem to have uh, skipped over racism. If racism is an expression of hatred, then why is it that, I'm just making a statement, it seems like in evangelicalism, um, the messages on racism seem to be missing. Whereas I wouldn't find any missing on adultery or stealing or being covetous or anything else. And you've said that it is a sin, so why isn't it addressed? And I would say in many cases that may be a case of confirmation bias, which is to say sometimes you are more apt to see things that you want to see and not see things that you don't want to see, or you're more apt to, to see things that kind of further your own viewpoint. Because I would say I have heard a lot of sermons on that are opposed to racism in greater evangelicalism. But just, uh, I mean, that is a valid point. If you go to a, uh, you know, the passage on James 2 on partiality, sure. or if you go to a passage on Colossians 3 on yeah. uh, neither Jew nor Greek, and you hear a pastor that's not preaching on racism and never does, you know, there may be a question in terms of, hey, is that pastor unbalanced potentially? But, you know, again, I, th- I hear a lot of people making that accusation. I'm not as convinced that that accusation sure. is true. And, and I think, again, the other thing you have to realize is I did a session last week on identity politics, and I went through a ton of New Testament passages saying that there is neither Jew nor Greek, that there is, uh, you know, just that, that, that we are to regard no one according to the flesh, that Paul, even in Philippians 3, said that, uh, you know, he counts all things as rubbish. Right after he gets done talking about his Hebrew among Hebrews ethnicity, that compared to knowing Christ, that that ethnic identity even is rubbish or refuse or dung or manure in comparison, or in the Greek, it's only something to be discarded. You know, that's what the Bible talks about ethnicity. So a lot of these people who are so focused on the notion of ethnicity and, and want to elevate it and, and see it everywhere and talk about it everywhere, I don't think that's biblical. I'll be plain. I don't think that's the right attitude. I don't think you see, you know, Christ must increase and every aspect of us, including our ethnic identities, must decrease. That's not to say it's completely unimportant, completely irrelevant, but it certainly is not anything that I see in Scripture as emphasized or elevated in importance. Even if you look at Acts 2 and, and uh, Galatians, or Acts 6 and Galatians mm-hmm. 2, the classic examples of ethnic discrimination in the Bible, you will see that in Acts 6, the majority uh, Hebraic Jews were uh, discriminated against the minority ethnic Hellenistic Jews, and the solution was, look, you need to cut that out, and you need to actually treat your minority ethnic members rightly. But if you look in Galatians, you see in Galatia, which is a region in central Turkey, uh, primarily uh, um, where the primary ethnic group was uh, people of Celtic origin, actually, you see the minority Jews discriminating against the majority Gentiles and, and keeping themselves separate and eating apart from them. And the same thing there. you got to cut that out. you got to repent. And, and ev- whether you're in the majority or in the minority, if you're acting with hatred, as Daryl said, you need to repent and you need to love your brothers. You know, I would just add to that, you know, for anyone who would say, well, I see, I don't see the church preaching as much on racism as they do on these other sins. You know, my, my question to them was, what, what would you want them to say? What would you want the pastor to say? Would you want the pastor to get up there and state the obvious? Yes, racism is a sin. Okay, fine. But have have you ever thought about the fact that what I can notice, I'm going to pick on my friend Ron here again. What I can notice about Ron with my naked eye, I notice his melanin level with my naked eye. How do you explain 
what I notice with the naked eye being captured in my mind, then translated as an attitude in my heart. How else do you explain that? Other than sin. So if you're going to keep count of how many sermons you hear or not hear on racism, what good is that going to do you apart hearing the gospel along with it that you need to repent of that hateful attitude that you possess? And it's in your heart. How do you explain that? It's, 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 it's that, 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 that train of thought that I can see this brother's skin color. It registers in my mind, he's white. But in my heart, I hate him because he's white? How do you explain that? No amount, okay, no amount of reparations, changes in law, or whatever else you want to put on that same table can change what I think about him in my heart. None of that can change that. That's why the distinction must be made between social justice and biblical justice. Because, again, remember this. The Quran speaks about justice as well. So why must I follow the Bible's path to justice? Why can't I just follow what the Quran says about it? If it's merely a justice issue, if it's merely a fairness issue. The reason the answer is you can't because ultimately the biblical path to justice brings you back to Christ as God. Which makes you accountable to God's definition of justice, not the world's. All right. Well, in addition to the questions being brief, maybe all three of us can work at trying to be briefer in our answers to uh, try to uh, try yeah, to uh, we get through take more some of our own medicine yeah, here. Yeah, uh, so, and I say that uh, criticizing myself. Fully. <laughs> um, why don't we take a few questions from the audience? If there, I think someone had a mic walking around. Okay, here we go. Thank you, David. I'm used to getting abused all the time, anyway. <laughs> I'm used to it from New York. Uh, I have a question about Saul Alinsky. That is the patron saint for the Democratic Party. Um, reason that I mentioned something to Phil uh, this last week, I was not aware of who he was, so per se. He, in 2016, uh, he, uh, ben, Harris, ben Carson was running... And he asked him that he dedicated his book on uh, radicals, how to create a social state, to Lucifer. And that's a very interesting aspect. So when you look at some of these aspects, health care, poverty, debt, gun control, welfare, education, religion, class warfare, this is what we are dealing in our society. Do you have a question? question yes. <laughs> How is that affecting our society, being that control health care, poverty increased poverty, debt increased debt, gun control removed the ability to defend themselves, welfare take control of every aspect of their lives, 
education, take control of people, read okay. and listen. I think that's enough. Thank you. Yeah. So this is what's happening in our society, in our colleges, and everything else. And this is what we are. Yeah. You men may buy. be able to, I think that may be a bit much for what we're trying to achieve, at least in this Q&A, because um, to yeah. unravel all of that. I'll, I'll simply say that yeah. there are there is every worldly, secular, nonsense True. theory out there, and whether it's Saul Alinsky or anyone coming sure. from an overtly unbiblical basis, uh, you know, I, I'm less concerned because ultimately my concern is to lift up the word of God and to live according to the word of God. And so just like I don't need to know, it's like what they talk about counterfeiting. I don't need to know every fake out sure. there. I don't need to know every random or even well-known theory out there by anyone like Alinsky or anyone else. I don't need to know the ins and outs of that theory uh, necessarily. I just need to know the word of God better because that's the truth. And if I know the word of God better, you know, I could quickly, I would hope, you know, go through anything by Alinsky or anyone else, you know, anyone else and say, look, this is unbiblical, this is unbiblical, this is unbiblical. And so, uh, you know, I appreciate your question in general, but I would also say, and maybe this will lead into another question that I think would be helpful um, as well at, on a more general level, uh, was texted to me by a couple of people. Have you seen social justice philosophy subtly seep into reformed churches? And if so, how specifically? Because I think that's a general concern that we would have in a number of churches. So why don't I pitch that to Carl? And to sure. Um, I've gotten several calls recently. Um, there is a developing ministry, a relationship between the Master's University, the Master's Seminary, uh, Grace to You, um, Grace Community Church, and others and thinking about how do we bring men together that have a common bond, common thinking, uh, alumni from not only just the Master's Seminary, but other institutions that would think like-mindedly. Um, and people have asked me, in several churches, mainline denominations, that we are thinking about leaving because there has been an overemphasis on uh, discussion on social justice. And these people may say, it's not that I am opposed to my interaction in society, but the emphasis or overemphasis um, I'm opposed to. And there is a sense in which now if I don't wholeheartedly, and that's the key word, if I don't wholeheartedly adapt all of what those that are advocating social justice, then I'm ridiculed or even considered an outcast. So there's been an adaption in some of these churches that I've spoken to um, where their pulpit time has changed, uh, what they're preaching has changed in some of those churches. There's been, and I'll, and I'll put it in these terms, um, an openness to consider sins that in the past were considered a sin that today is not. Let me give you an example of what I mean by that. My Years ago, before we even had any discussion here at Grace Church about social justice or, or even before it was taken on the force that it has, I got a call from one of my nephews in Florida, and he says to me, Uncle Carl, what do you think about this organization? And I said, well, you know, interesting. Here's the problem with it. Uh, I think there are some things that it stands for that I don't see how as a Christian you could say that you're opposed to. God has a heart for the poor. It's clear. 
as the book of Isaiah, which I love, it starts off Isaiah 117. It talks about justice and it talks about defending the widow and it talks about uh, being concerned for the poor. And it talks about also that you need to not defend those that have means. So there's bias that's there. So that, that's clear. But I said the problem I have with the organization is that it also um, is an advocate of sins and lifestyles and an ideology that any Christian should oppose. And that's what I see that's happening in most churches. They have affiliations with organizations where there may be a portion of what they stand for is, in fact, you would say is right. But yet they're also advocates or other things that are diametrically opposed to the Bible. And so there's a pressure to have an association with these organizations, because if you don't have that association, there's a blanket statement that you are intolerant, uh, that you are unloving, and that you're not understanding. So I see more and more of these churches caving, caving into that approach. And I think it's probably, I didn't hear it, I was out of town last week, what Han may have addressed in his identity politics um, and I think in a nutshell is at times um, a group of people that say bec- simply because of our race, we must band together and vote this way. Whereas uh, let's not simply say because we are this race, we must vote this way. Let's simply say, what are our values and do our values direct us to vote for whomever we may? Then what I've seen often in some uh, African-American communities, and I've interacted with some of my friends on this, that they will say, yes, I'm voting for him, although (laughs) what I actually heard preached on Sunday contradicts so many of his other policies, but yet he is for me in this. And so there's a compromise that's there. And I've asked some of my friends repeatedly, how is it that this person opposes what you believe as a Christian, but yet you're going to support him because you think that he will lend something to your community. And that's wrong. And I see that happening in churches as well. We'll turn a blind eye to this aspect of what they do because we think this um, is reasonable or even at times perhaps even biblical. Yeah, I do see the, um, I, I kind of liken the uh, issue of social justice, its various manifestations to uh, trying to paint with watercolors. Uh, you just cannot possibly prevent them from blending and bleeding in together. Uh, and I do see social justice uh, bleeding into solidly reformed churches and seminaries. And when that starts, uh, because reformed uh, churches and seminaries are some of the most theologically conservative entities and institutions that there are. And when you see uh, uh, folks giving lectures, uh, uh, quoting folks like James Cone uh, as a source, yeah, you're pretty much in trouble uh, at that point. Uh, but I want to go back to something Ron was saying earlier. You know, th- this whole issue of, uh, 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 the, the mirror of things that he listed with respect to um, uh, what society is demand demanding and what government is trying to promise us. Um, there are many within the church today who are trying to, they've bought into that worldview so as to try to create heaven on earth. Uh, that's really what it's about. And if we know anything, uh, not only is this earth not our home, this earth is passing away. Second uh, Peter 3.13 says, but according to his promise, And Peter uses this pronoun specifically according to his promise. That is, according to God's promise, we, that is the body of Christ, uh, 
are looking to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. And I think part of the frustration for me on this whole social justice issue is that we seem to act surprised that an unredeemed world, an unregenerate world would act unregenerate. Amen. Why, why does it surprise us that there's injustice? We should expect injustice. And hatred. Do not and, be surprised, my brethren, when the world, when the world hates, hates you. you. Why are we surprised about this? And, and listen, I say surprised because if you track this, this latest iteration of social justice, because this isn't, the first, this isn't the first time this issue's come around against the church, okay? This is not the church's first rodeo on this one. But you can trace this most recent one back to uh, the situation involving Trayvon Martin in Florida. Now, I'm going to speak very bluntly here. There are those, and I'm not going to name names, but there are those within the body of Christ whose righteous indignation was piqued only because that a certain act of injustice happened to someone who looks like them. Now, the true Christian would want justice for everybody based on the principle of the Imago Dei. Genesis 127. We, each of us is created in the image of God. Acts 17, 26 says that God created from one man, Adam, every nation on the face of the earth. Now, that word nation in the Greek is the word ethnos. It's where we get our English word ethnicity. Race, the word race isn't even biblical. Not in the way the world uses it. The Bible uses race in terms of genus, a type. So you and I are, are a race as the, in the fact that we are human beings. But in the manner that the world defines race, it's based on what shade of melanin you happen to possess. Biblically, race isn't even a term. The correct biblical term is ethnicity. God created ethnicities, not races. And I'm very dogmatic that when we're engaging on topics like social justice, racism, if you are a believer, you must be dogmatic and use biblical terms, biblical vernacular in order to understand what the context is. Because the moment you start using the world's language, you're on their turf at that point. So, again, we should not be surprised when there's injustice. This is an unredeemed world in which we live in, and it's going to be unredeemed until Christ returns to make everything not better. New, the Bible says. So can I and Daryl and I have talked about this a bit, the issue of race, uh, ethnicity. um, And, you know, even when we get into melanin count um, with people, Um, but then we come back. And we interface with the here and now. Uh, we put our boots on the ground, and people are prejudiced. Okay, we all know that, do we not? People are prejudiced, and they're generally prejudiced because a person doesn't look like them, and they have something in their heart. They, at times, it is taught. It has been taught in the past to think of somebody that doesn't look like you is less than you. Um, we all know some of us may have even come from a background where you had that experience, but until the Lord got a hold of your heart, it changed it. We know that in our country, this is very much a part of a system that said these people are less than you. They are not like us. 
And so a child learns um, the, all of us have the potential for hatred in their hearts. And what they do is it is um, it is nurtured at times with systems that do what? That fertilize that, that teach it systematically, or even at times uh, um, unwittingly, but intentionally teach it supposedly biblically that these people are less than you are. And so the question is, knowing that, how does a person respond to a history where that was the case? Is there any voice that a church should have as far as speaking against what has been true in the past and how there may be then results of it even in our present? You know, I'm going to actually take that point, which I think is an interesting point, and uh, I'm going to springboard to another text. Sure. We've actually answered a few texted questions in this discourse, so I'm actually quite glad for that. But, um, you know, even as we talk about that kind of how do you deal with that reality of historical injustice, I guess one point I would raise going back to Acts 6 and Galatians 2, uh, in those contexts, the solution in both cases was, look, cut it out. Cut out the ethnic discrimination you're doing. And there's no mention in either of those cases on the topic of reparations as one example. And I've gotten three or four questions on that topic of reparations. And Daryl, I know you did a whole podcast on the topic of reparations. So what's your view in terms of reparations and this current discussion in our, in our society on reparations? Yeah, that's an interesting um, issue. That's sort of a, a subtopic of this whole social justice a broader issue. And I think to, to what Carl was saying earlier, yes, I acknowledge uh, the historical sins that individuals, entities, institutions have committed with respect to being uh, ethnically prejudicial, uh, which is a sin. But there's an element that goes beyond acknowledging those historical sins, whereby that, that element wants this current generation of a particular ethnic group to bear not only the um, brunt of those sins, but the guilt of it. I term that sin by proxy. They are demanding that people of a certain ethnic group who uh, were related to those previous generations that may have been involved in those historical sins, that they pay for those sins by virtue of reparations. I don't find anything in scripture to support that. Um, t- take, take yourselves, for instance. T- take, I'll just speak for me. Um, who am I, given my sins, to demand that any sin against me be paid for by the offender? I- I'm not in that position. Uh, and, and listen, let's be frank here. Monetary reparations, reparations is not regenerative. Ultimately, what you want is heart change. That's what you you want to get to the root cause of the issue that led to, in this case, slavery to begin with. And and, and that's what that's another thing that frustrates me about this whole conversation. We're We're looking at symptoms and we're not looking at the disease. The disease is sin. It's been that way since Genesis 3. Listen, you can't just go back to 1864. That's not where this thing, that's, this thing didn't start with the Civil War. Listen, I sit here as someone who is descended 
from a tribe, not of African slaves. I'm descended from a tribe of African slave owners. My people were the Bolanta people in Guinea-Bissau, West Africa. They willingly participated in the Atlantic slave trade with the Portuguese and the Europeans in selling their own people into slavery in exchange for farming tools. They were rice farmers. Now, what do you do? What does a reparationist do with somebody like me? Do I pay reparations or am I owed reparations? Why don't you pay yourself? Maybe I could pay myself. But how much do I pay myself? That's the question. (laughs) This whole conversation is cyclical. Like I said earlier, this is not the first rodeo for the church. This whole conversation is cyclical. No, no amount of reparations can guarantee. First, to, to, to Hans' point earlier, just a second ago, you can pay me a gazillion dollars. Now, my bank account is full. But how does Ron know that I still don't think he's a racist white supremacist in here? If Ron writes me that check, has he really gained anything? Nothing. He's gained absolutely nothing. So the goal of the church, the goal of the Christian is to, just as Jesus did in Mark 115, his very first sermon that he ever gave, first word out of his mouth was repent, not reparate. It was repent. I think uh, there's a helpful, even as we talk about this concept of reparations, of even lamenting, uh, Kevin DeYoung has a helpful article entitled Toward a Theology of Apology. And it was really interesting because it goes through various different types of kind of acknowledgement. And, you know, it is certainly fine to lament over and to acknowledge that, yeah, some of these sins of racism in the past are horrific, terrible sins. But that is distinct and separate from an actual responsibility or obligation. There's, no one, there's not a single person alive today that either suffered from or instituted the horrible, horrible sin of slavery, for example. And, and so one can certainly lament over that, acknowledge that historical wrong, even to the extent that there are you know, kind of things that um, reverberate through history uh, relating to that wrong. But one can even be vigilant to make sure that wrong never happens again. But I think Pastor John had an incredible series uh, last year from Ezekiel that talks about each man is accountable for his own sin. The, pa- the, the children are not responsible for the sins of the parents. And at the end of the day, th- that, that's why this whole notion of corporate repentance is kind of this, uh, it's in vogue right now among many of the social justicians to speak about. Well, look, repentance, especially when we're talking about the Gospels and, and the Gospel itself, repentance is an individual act. I can't repent on behalf of anyone else. I, I can't, I can't, you know, th- th- this, there's this notion of I can't speak on behalf of all Asian people. I, I can't, like, go and do that. I can't fix things on behalf of all Asian people, nor can I receive reparations on behalf of all Asian people. I, I can't, that, that would be incredibly presumptuous and prideful of me to do that. You know, what I, what I can do is I can deal with my own individual actions. If someone has wronged me individually, directly, I can deal with that. I think reparations, when you're talking about uh, a, a present horizontal wrong, they, that may be appropriate in certain cases. I would call it restitution, however, because that's a more biblical term. 
But when we're talking about things that are ages old, uh, that, that's not really what we see in Scripture. And every example I've seen argued by the social justicians to try to support that from Scripture are either invalid from Old Testament examples that are not really applicable to this current context or are uh, just really badly misinterpreted, I would say. Can I? There is a, a text that perhaps it's been referenced a couple times without um, taking note of it. Galatians chapter 2. Um, in verse 14, because you referenced the idea of a reversal, if you will, of prejudice in that situation. And a statement is made as Peter is rebuked. And what's curious, the statement is made that he is not being right as to the gospel. So there's a gospel connection because at times I've people have said, well, this has nothing to do with the gospel. It's not a gospel issue. But from Galatians 2.14, the expression of prejudice sure seems to be a gospel issue. So how do we give some guidance to maybe people that have on this issue and understanding that statement that's in Galatians 2.14? Yeah, I would just say, you know, I hear the term or the phrase gospel issue used quite often uh, and my response to that is, uh, I, I think it's beholden to us to first of all understand that we understand what the gospel is. Uh, the gospel at its core is about God in Christ coming into this sinful world and vicariously taking on our sin debt. So to say that anything, let alone social justice, is a gospel issue, we must begin with the gospel. And I fear that there are far too many professing believers who are delving into this social justice topic with all its sort of amoeba type uh, elements that don't know what the gospel fundamentally is. I mean, it goes back to my point, my my, uh, comment I made earlier. You have to be able to distinguish why is social justice or justice, I'm going to start saying justice, why is justice a gospel issue and not an an issue as it relates to what the Quran says about it? How would you respond to that? How would you respond to a Muslim coming to you and saying to you, well, what my holy book says about justice is just as valid as what your holy book says? If you don't know what the gospel is, you can't answer that question. That is a fundamental antecedent question to even responding to whether or not social justice is a gospel issue. That's secondary. The primary question is, what is the gospel? And the, and secondary, one question one, what is the gospel? Question 1A is why is the gospel authoritative above and beyond every other system or worldview of justice that may exist. So unless you can answer that question, whether or not social justice is a gospel issue is totally secondary. Yeah, I I have, this is the gravest 
part of this discussion that concerns me, I would say, because I have all kinds of concerns about the uh, social justicians uh, and their arguments. I've got concerns on an ecclesiological ecclesiological level. We had talked about, you know, what's the role of the church versus the role of the individual. I have concerns on an eschatological level. You know, we are premillennialists here, and, you know, we understand that the only person who's going to set things right, make things new, as Daryl said, is Christ. It's not going to be uh, the efforts of men. Uh, I have concerns on a harmatological issue in terms of an understanding of sin, because a lot of times there's an impingement upon Christian liberty and stewardship by people who are trying to bind people's consciences with these very specific things. Oh, you need to do this. You need to do that. You need to get on board with this cause. Otherwise, you're not being a good Christian. Or sometimes they even say you're not you're, you're being in sin. I have a major concern about that type of legalism, I would say. I have a concern with respect to even an understanding of uh, God's justice versus God's mercy in terms of that fundamental understanding of the attributes of God. And as that kind of flows down to mankind, that kind of theology proper, that confusion of mercy and justice, that mercy would be a free gift from someone that we as Christians can and should show mercy regularly. But if someone tries to tell you, oh, no, this is a justice issue, you have to do it, then they can compel you to do something. And a misunderstanding of mercy and justice is a concern. But my biggest concern is on this soteriological issue of gospel. You hear this all the time. Oh, so-and-so is a gospel issue. Again, I'm going to call out Phil Johnson right here. He wrote an excellent article for the Statement on Social Justice website called A Gospel Issue? Question mark, And it kind of relates an encounter that goes into this, and it, it shows the danger of confusing an implication of the gospel, which is to say that we as Christians, once saved, suddenly we want to do good works. Of course, that's true. But confusing that with the gospel itself is indeed the Galatian heresy, as Carl was pointing out in Galatians 2, because Peter and the circumcision party were trying to say, in addition to the gospel, you need to do this work. You need to go get circumcised. That's the gospel confusion that's relating. And you see it from people like uh, uh, Paul Tripp had written a public statement about how he had uh, had been suffering from what he believed was a quote-unquote truncated gospel all this time. And he, is, he was sitting under, I don't know if he still is, but he was sitting under the teaching of a man named Eric Mason, who has written a book called Woke Church. And similarly, there, uh, there, there's a number of reviews of that book where there are these elements in that book where there is a similar level of truncated gospel type of discussion. And this is of grave concern because if you lose the gospel, you lose Christianity. So all of these things, of course we want to do justice, generally speaking, in our daily walk as Christians as an implication of the saving gospel. But it is not the gospel. And that's so important. Yeah, I think that's where we need to help people understand it. So not the gospel, but an implication of, but at the same time cannot be divorced from it. Because if there is no expression of the gospel, the question is, do we have the gospel? That is, if we are not working out righteousness and kindness and goodness, um, the New Testament, I believe, would call into question whether or not we understand the gospel. And so some people then say, well, yes, it is a gospel issue, not in a sense of his expression, justice and me being justified. But it's an expression of me showing justice, being just and my behavior towards other people. And if I can consistently not show justice towards my fellow man, 
it calls into question whether or not I understand the gospel. Yeah, and I think the issue there is that's a general sanctification issue. Sure. That could be true of anything. If you are Absolutely. living a life of adultery or immorality, that is showing a misunderstanding of everything we're yeah. called to in the word of God. And so I agree, we are called to do justice, so to speak. That does not mean we are forced to virtue signal on social media as a counterexample. But to do justice in our individual walks you know, toward people around us. If we a situ- situation is in front of us and we see that there's someone being uh, mistreated in front of us, as Christians, yes, we can say, look, you know, we, we need to stand up for what's right and, and do justice in that way. Similarly, we need to leave lives of purity and holiness in every area of our walks. And I would say that this, again, this is a kind of, uh, it's a very narrow focus on one portion of a much broader sanctification generally. Yeah, I think you bring up a great point, Han, with respect to the connection between social justice and a sort of um, misapplication of the soteriological element to that. Because the world would say, the social justitians outside the church would say, well, we need to do these good works. Then they enumerate them, whatever those works might be. But for the believer, motive is just as important Amen. as the work itself. Christians are commanded to what? Do works in keeping with repentance. Repentance. The social justician would say, well, do these works in keeping with. It could be anything. Most times it's in keeping with what my personal political agenda is. Not the objective truth of the word of God. So we must remember that we listen. We must become thinkers on this issue, not just reactors to it. We must become thinkers. Um, If I could read something really, really short. This is from um, Thomas Sowell's book, Cosmic Justice. I think this applies and just gives you sort of an idea of the mindset of the average social justician out there. There's an ancient fable about a dog with a bone in his mouth. He looked down into a pool of water and saw a reflection that looked to him like another dog with another bone. And that other bone seemed to be larger than his bone. Determined to get the other bone instead, the dog opened his mouth and prepared to jump into the water. This, of course, caused its own bone to drop into the water and be lost. Social justice is much like that illusory bone, and it, too, can cause us to lose what is attainable in quest of the unattainable. Social justice, as the world defines defines it, is unattainable. As believers, we know that that's unattainable. Why? Because we're sinners. Even we who are redeemed, we still sin. We don't even sin. Sorry, we don't even obey God perfectly in our own little silos. Why would we expect the world to do that or society as a whole? So you cannot separate uh, uh, justice from the gospel. You just can't walk out of these doors here and say, yeah, I'm going to go do this or do that. What is your motive? Even in your good works, your motive must be pure. And that pure motive is only derived by Christ coming to your heart and your heart being regenerated by the power of his Holy Spirit. Amen. And Pastor John, uh, just a couple of months ago, preached on Colossians 3 and verse 2, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. And I think that goes to Daryl's point about remembering, look, what is our motive? What are we going, what are we really striving toward? And I think that 
look, we are, again, to love our neighbor and to care for people. But if our focus is too temporally worldly focused, that's not what we're called to do. And ultimately what matters is the spiritual condition of mankind. That's the things above. That's the things eternal. And I think, yeah, oh, sorry, I ahead, just Paul. wanted to say, and I think that's where my observation, where there is a bit of the confusion. For right now, let's divest ourselves from the conversation about the world, what they, how they define the terms, and let's talk about the household of God, since the terms are very much a part of our conversation right now, and Christians trying to discern what does this mean for us. And so that when you say it too much, so it wasn't that it's an absolute that there's none. The question is, what's that line that says that's too much? How do how do you discern that? How does a minister discern um, when he's talked too much about the issue of racism? And I think some of that can be um, saved by being expositor. So as you're an expositor, as you're expositing the text, that text comes up and maybe you are in James and maybe you are in Galatians somewhere. And maybe you are in Acts and you can address it when it comes. But if that becomes uh, the, what you're noted for in your pulpit, we might say that's too much. So we, I don't think we're saying it's an absolute because if we're saying it's an absolute, then Grace Community Church should divest itself from any interaction with any ministry to the poor or to the unfortunate. We should. So since it's not an absolute, people, I think, are often asking, where is that line? When do I know that I've gone too far? When am I investing too much time in this? Because, say, for instance, we make a conversation. We can make the same thing when it comes to a Christian in the political realm. Yep. How much do I say? What what do I do? How involved do I be? How involved should I be? Do I go support? Do I do that? Then one could say, if we make it an absolute again, Pastor John should have never preached that message. He did whenever it was, 2016. Why did he take the time to, to warn believers from a moral standpoint about what was happening and how one should have the freedom to vote, but yet there are moral implications of the vote itself? Some may be critical of that and say, well, that should have never happened, perhaps. Um, it's a statement right now. It's, I think it's yeah. a bigger statement that we need to continue to wrestle through to help people discern where that line is. Because I tend to see a bunch of absolutes. Yeah. I, I see in the blogosphere and everywhere else, it's an absolute. And the church shouldn't be involved in that but then I ask sometimes people the question then to what degree should we be how how much do we help or do we help at all is the question yeah and I think your question gets or your point Carl which I I totally agree with it gets to the notion of stewardship sure. which is again this is something that I really key on in these discussions because you know if a man has a stewardship from God of a pulpit in a biblically faithful church that is an enormous Stewardship, And he is going to be accountable, we know from James 3, for every word he speaks. And, you know, just it's a weighty responsibility. And so when a man decides, look, this is an issue that I think is worthy to bring before the congregation, that's a weighty matter. But it's also ultimately going to be a matter subject to an individual's calling. 
and, you know, just an individual stewardship. And so I talked a little bit about, you know, pastors that have hobby horses. And, you know, you're going to hear it when that happens and comes from the pulpit again and again and again. And it's notable if it's an exception, right? Like, you know, the the thing you mentioned with Pastor John, it was so notable because he never does that, right? And yet he felt in his stewardship that this was important enough that despite the fact that he very seldom addresses these types of issues, that this was a moment where he felt accountable in his own stewardship to say something. And I think that that was made it all the more impactful no, in many ways. I agree and, with that. And you compare that to other people who might like talk about the same issue three times a month, and that might be a little bit of an unbalanced hobby horse. So, well, because yeah. some of them, it's it's just the opposite. It's the exception to preach only the gospel. Right. <laughs> exactly. Wow. We exactly. didn't hear we didn't hear yeah. anything about what's happening in the political arena at all. This was all Christ. We we're in Colossians, and we worked through Colossians, and we saw the glory of Christ. We saw Christ who is at the right hand of God. We saw this call to put aside the past. We saw this call to live in the church. That's what I walked away from. Yeah. No, and really, that's, you know, I laugh because one of the accusations that has come John's way and the way of many people who really want to preach the importance and the primacy of the gospel is, oh, well, you know, you, you guys only talk about the gospel and right. you're not, you don't talk about the implication of the gospel. I laugh because, you know, John preaches the whole counsel of God. You know, he's the man who wrote the gospel according to Jesus that being saved has implications on your life. So when I hear people like that trying to say, oh, you guys only, you you know, preach the gospel and nothing else. It's like, you guys should just be here for a month and you will see what John preaches. And it's the whole counsel of God and that the scripture does indeed have imperatives upon our life and that we are to live it out and walk in a manner worthy of our calling. It's the most ludicrous criticism. I think one of the weakest pillars of the social justice movement out there is that they, as they envision justice, no one should ever have a need go unmet. Nothing should go unmet, and everything to them is a need. Even a want is a need. But I want to point you back to Scripture in John's, uh, John the Baptist's interaction with Jesus. John is imprisoned unjustly. Unjustly. John the Baptist sends a couple of his disciples to Jesus to ask him, are you the expected one? Or are we to wait for someone else? Jesus, being God, being omniscient, knows not only that John is in prison, but why he's in prison. Now, if there was ever an opportunity to make an unjust situation just, that was it. But what does Jesus do? He sends John's the Baptist disciples back to John and said, go and tell John, remind John of what John has seen. He's seen the blind see. He's seen the lame walk. He's seen the dead raised. But what does Jesus say for last? He says, and remind him that the poor, not that they've had jobs given to them, Not that they all have homes, not that they all have a quote unquote living wage. No, Jesus said, remind John that the poor have had the gospel preached to them. Mm -hmm. Now, why is that important? Because even the poor are going to die. Even the poor, according to Romans 14, 12, are going to give an account to God. 
So yes, and, and this is what I love about that discord, that response from Jesus, because it's not an either or proposition, but it is a matter of priorities. If I put uh, shoes on the shoeless, they'll just go to hell with shoes on. If you don't preach the saving gospel of Christ and that, that, that even that poor person in the depths of their poverty need to repent of their sins and come to faith in Christ so as to escape the wrath of God that is hanging over them right now, according to John three thirty six for their sins. What good does it do me to put shoes on their feet? And this is exactly why if you talk to microcardian local outreach, one of the things that we believe in so strongly here is that. You can't just have mercy ministry alone for its own sake. You have to pair mercy ministry with the gospel. And ultimately, that is so critically important, and it makes it distinct from the social gospel movement of Rauschenbusch back from, what, 100, 100 years ago or more, or even, again, some of the discussion today. I almost feel as if some of the discussion today, there would be some people who would be very satisfied with social change without uh, spiritual change. And, and again, I'm not trying to say that of all of the social justitians. That would be unfair. But yeah. I'm just saying that seems to be the emphasis and the attitude that I see sometimes from certain individuals. Yeah, and I can say from personal experience, a ministry that I've been involved in for, I'm on the board of it, more than bread, in Haiti. I was just there, what is it, a month ago. Great. We just had our first graduating class of men that's going through a training center that we started there. Why is it important? Even the name itself, more than bread, and that was chosen for a reason. Because if you were to go to Haiti, you would see per person, no other place like it on the planet, literally, where missionaries per person, but the emphasis is, for the most part, alarming statistically, for mercy ministry without the gospel. Without the gospel. So orphanages needed. Um, feeding people, clothing people needed. Education needed. I don't know that anyone would say those things aren't needed. But without the gospel, it's to the point that's already made, and I think all of us understand, without the gospel, they enter into eternal, eternal hell. But what we've done, as you said, one, it shouldn't be one without the other. The tendency is, and it seems like the movement in the church, is that the first priority is mercy ministry. And some of this has to do with the idea that we would say that perhaps until we can um, find a common ground with that person, earn the right to share the gospel, then we can share the gospel. I've never been an advocate of this, this thinking. Um, and I, I hear it even in evangelical circles, the right to share the gospel. And, and maybe at times, even in conservative circles, we say that. I have the right to share the gospel because I've been commissioned by the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And commanded to share I'm the gospel. I'm commanded to share the gospel. Proclaim the gospel. I am his messenger. I am his apostle. Not in the apostolic sense, you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> so I automatically have the right to do that. But yet, as you said before, these two join, being in a place like Haiti and other places as well, when we have men that are get together, when we pull them together, we do give them a meal. We do, brother, those shoes, when was the last time you changed them? Well, I haven't. You go to someone's house and it's a tin roof. And you say to yourself, I think we have some resources to, to patch up the roof of that house. So, it's, again, it's, we're not divesting it 
from the gospel itself. And sometimes there's a caricature that's placed on those that may have some of the views that we do that you're only about the gospel. And at times I want to ask, okay, what do you mean by that? It's not just go be warmed and filled. Yeah, it's not be warmed and filled. I gave you the gospel. You have what's necessary for your soul, but you're naked. James would say, no, that's atrocious. You have the means to take care of them. That is not true gospel expressed. So I, I think we need to make sure that we understand that, that that relationship, there is obviously a priority because the question is, as stated in scripture, what does it matter if one gains the whole world and they lose their soul? Their soul. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the social gospel, what they do in, in sort of contrast to what Carl was saying, social justiceians, you, they, they view the works themselves as salvific. So, so you must see that, that that whole paradigm of thinking is another gospel. They're preaching a different gospel where the works themselves are salvific and will ultimately result in, as I said earlier, a kind of heaven on earth, a sort of kumbaya kind of unity of everyone around the globe because we're citizens of the world, they would say. So they see the works themselves. If there's, if there's no other distinction between the social, social justice and biblical justice, remember that one thing, that they view the works themselves as salvific. It's a behavioral soteriology, okay, not a spiritual one. Yeah, because, and it is a soteriological issue, as Han said earlier, because now um, some would call it exemplary salvation. That is, I have followed the example of Christ and his moral behavior and his kindness towards mankind. Therefore, by way of example, I gain salvation. See, the question you have to ask even there is why, what gives Christ's example validity? There were people long before Christ came into the world who were, were exemplaries of good behavior, morality. So why would anyone say, well, Christ is my example if Christ is not God? If, he, if he's not the example, you only say that Christ is my example if Christ is the example. Again, it goes back to the point I made earlier. You must know what the gospel is and you must understand how God designed it. And what he, what he designed it to do. You can't just say it's a gospel issue that, or, 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 or so, so that you can know how to respond to the person who says, well, Christ is my example as opposed to Allah. So I think this is part of the issue of getting three preachers uh, that uh, are passionate about a subject in a QA. and I, I have tried to steer, I've, I think of, by my count, we've answered 12 or 13 of the three dozen or more text messages ever. Yeah, oh yeah. So apologies if we're not able to get to all of them. Let, let's take another question from the floor. If you've got a burning question, uh, let's, uh, yeah, um, ma'am, right over there. Hi, thank you so much for having this panel. Yeah. I have a question. I hope to direct it to either Pastor Cho or Pastor Hargrove. And I'm wondering what kind of, I believe it was mentioned earlier in the session, what is the line between the church and the individual Christian's role kind of in social justice? What can we feel empowered to participate in? Um, where can our own personal morals kind of fit in? You know, because I feel that sometimes there is, you know, we are anointed, we are chosen. So we are just kind of in the world, but not of it. But there are people that are 
suffering, you know, so people, as we were talking about racism, right? So I personally don't have the privilege of being able to work like in the church, right? So that isn't just a common understanding that racism is sinful. So how can we kind of bring that message to others that don't share our values, that don't believe in biblical justice? You know, how can we effectively and compassionately communicate with them? And what kind of tools can we use to to find our own biblical understanding of how we can participate in social justice? Well, I... uh... Um, I appreciate your question because I think it's a question that many individual Christians are trying to work out in their own walk. And, you know, again, I am all in favor of an individual Christian, especially if the Lord has placed, uh, you know, just a a particular interest or capability on their heart to to really um, work toward a certain topic. One example I like to give is uh, there's a woman named Rachel Den Hollander, who I have a lot of respect for, and she has been placed uh, sovereignly by God in a position where she can speak very powerfully to the issue of sexual abuse, both in the church and in the society at large. And she is a powerful crusader. She's going to be able to speak to that specific issue far better than just about anyone I can think of. And she's a solid, reformed believer who believes a lot of the same things that we do. And I have an appreciation for her. And she and her husband both have a calling, they believe, from the Lord to to speak on this issue uh, at length and very effectively. And so I think of William Wilberforce, who, uh, you know, when God saved him, he was in the, uh, you know, he was able to, in the British Parliament, he was able to uh, really strongly drive efforts to abolish slavery in the UK. And that, praise the Lord for that. You know, I think that was an incredible uh, act that uh, William Wilberforce was able to do. And similarly, there may be things, there, there are people who have a passion to fight abortion, the horror of abortion. And there's other people who have a, really have a passion to fight uh, human trafficking. And I think all of those things, as our, you know, as our individual calling in Christ, these are within your stewardship. Um, I gave a message a couple of summers ago from Sundays in July on uh, Skin Deep, it was entitled, and I would say the latter half of that message talks about ways that you can and maybe maybe that you should not do justice, if you will, in your individual walk as Christians, giving some kind of thoughts and guidelines, not, not comprehensive by any means, but I would, uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, recommend that to you. Yeah, and I think what was key is what you said, the sense of individual stewardship, a burden that the Lord has placed in your heart to be engaged in a way that you can demonstrate your compassion toward your neighbor. I was in uh, all my travels. I forget which city it was, but um, Baltimore. And there were some folks just planting trees on the street. There were actually a group of Christians that were in front of an abortion clinic. They asked me to come out. They They were preaching there. And I saw these people planting trees on the street. It was a part of sort of urban renewal. I decided to go help them plant trees instead of preaching in front of the abortion clinic. Oh, why are you here? Um, Who are you? I'm just here to help you. And we helped in about 30 minutes into it, an hour into it. So tell me, where are you from? Well, I'm from here. What do you do? I'm a pastor. Um, Why are you helping us? Uh, It seems like this is a good thing for you to do. This communities like this need it. Let me tell you, and eventually it was a gospel opportunity. So I took my light into a situation and God afforded me the opportunity. And sometimes we say God afforded. Sometimes you just need to create it um, because we're like, we're waiting on the opportunity, right? No, just tell the person the message. And I shared the message with them. And I think so now something is on your heart to work with the poor that are in Skid Row here. 
and you do that and take that light with you, but make sure that light is the gospel light. Amen. That you're not ashamed of the gospel. It is the hope that you take with you. And so we have to be careful that we're not sometimes too often making this division between the sacred and the secular, because wherever we go as God's people who are called, we take that sacred message with us. Yeah is what we need to do. I mean, I think just about every local outreach program we have, I would say the vast majority, if not all of them, were started by someone in the church, just a member who had a real passion for that type of outreach or that type of gospel ministry. And praise the Lord for that. You know, we we, we really love that. And if, if a person has it on their heart, it's like, look, I have a real passion to fight ethnic discrimination in our society, I don't necessarily have a quarrel with that person. The place where I would have a quarrel is if they start saying, well, if you don't jump on board my cause with me, then you're in sin, or you're, you're not a good Christian. Th- those are the areas, and I have this same criticism, by the way, for there is an organization, I'm not even going to name it because I don't want to give them the publicity, but there is a, a an abortion uh, so-called ministry that you might even see them like picketing the Shepherds yeah. Conference, and, and they take this similar, look, I hate abortion. I think we should take pains it would be great if individuals were called to fight that injustice, the greatest injustice I'm personally aware of in our society today, where nearly a million unborn children are murdered every year in the United States by estimates. I passionately oppose that uh, abortion, and, and I really believe it would be wonderful if many Christians in their own calling would fight that. But I'm not going to take the extreme of this organization which says, look, all you pastors who hate abortion, you're still not doing enough. And that's the attitude that I see in many social justitians today. It's like, you're not doing enough. I, I know you hate racism, but if you're not making this a hallmark of your minute, there's, there's people on Twitter that make that claim. Like, you need to be, you know, anti-racist, so the, the, the quote goes, in every area of your life. Otherwise, you're not, otherwise you're really supporting white supremacy. People have accused that yeah, of yeah. Daryl and, and Phil and other men that we know. They've made accusations like that, and they're ludicrous, because I know these men hate racism. They hate white supremacy, but just because they may not... Uh, make it the absolute centerpiece of every part of their preaching and ministry, some people that are that are going to judge them as not being woke enough. Well, it's like my answer is, that's stewardship and calling and Christian liberty. And at the end yeah. of the day, you go too far when you try to impose your priorities on someone else. Yeah, and, and a part of it too, at times my observation is that I wonder for a minister of the gospel to be that engaged in some of these other issues, how are you possibly discipling men? How, how are you putting in the necessary time for expository messages? How are you visiting your own flock and seeing about the care of their souls if you're so engaged in these areas that are taking you away from the life of a local church? It, it becomes now a matter of priority, and even a, in a pastor's gospel priorities. Yeah. No, look, if someone were to come to you and say, I think you should spend your money on this, this, and this, and these amounts. You would say to him, well, you, you seem like kind of a heavy-handed legalist. Well, that's the same thing with people trying to do that to your time and with your voice. You know, uh, Han just used the word fight a couple of times, and, and this is just a personal pet peeve of mine. <clears throat> for the, I, I think for the church, we cannot see this whole issue of social justice as a fight. Because when you take a sort of militaristic, and I say that as a, as a veteran, when you take a militaristic perspective on this, that's where you get, uh, people get divided and then you end up being on sides of this issue. Uh, so to me, the issue is not a fight. Um, when, the, when the gospel becomes a movement and not a message, then you're in trouble. 
That's when we lose the gospel when that happens. Amen. And I receive your rebuke, my brother. Uh, that's all right. That's well, all right. we're going to be here. Uh, yeah, you know, we'll if we linger like around. Have any specific questions, but maybe Carl, if you could close us in a little Sure. Way Lord, thank you for this time that we've had. And um, obviously, there's an interest that your people here have to think about this clearly and many questions that we didn't get to. And uh, I just pray that we would be discerning, um, that we not be reactionary, that we be thoughtful. And perhaps mainly that we be gracious. So thank you. Uh, Pray that this has been a blessing in Christ's name. Amen.